Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Is the Holy Spirit a person or a force? Well, on today's program, we'll gain a biblical understanding of God the Spirit as we continue our current series, This is Our God. So let's begin now with Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld. I have a memory of preaching in a church somewhere across this country, and as I finished, a very articulate woman approached me. She appeared to me to have been a Christian for many years, but she wanted to speak to me about the Holy Spirit. She said, I know I'm supposed to believe that the Holy Spirit is God, but I really can't find that in the Scripture. She went on to say that she was deeply confused about the Holy Spirit, and she was faithfully reading her Bible, but it had not appeared to her that she could find a place where the Holy Spirit should be thought of as God. I don't think she's alone. I've become quite accustomed to hear Christian people referring to the Holy Spirit as an it. And by that, they betray that when they think about God, they're not thinking about the Holy Spirit at all. And when they think about the Holy Spirit, they're not thinking about God. Instead, they're thinking about a power or a force or a flow of energy that empowers them. But they're not thinking of the only God. I often try to correct them. But referring to the Holy Spirit as an it is commonplace in many Christian circles. Indeed, for some, our understanding of the Holy Spirit is deeply confused. There are those Christians who hardly speak of the Holy Spirit at all. He simply has no place in their understanding of God or their faith. And for others, even though they speak of the Holy Spirit constantly, only speak of Him as an encounter with power. What's missing is reverence, worship attributing to him the praise which is rightfully due God alone. Speaking in the 4th century, Gregory of Nazianzus, the Archbishop of Constantinople and an able theologian said, The deity of the Holy Spirit ought to be clearly recognized in Scripture. Look at these facts. Christ is born. The Spirit is his forerunner. Christ is baptized. The Spirit bears witness. Christ is tempted. The Spirit leads him up. Christ ascends, the Spirit takes his place. What great things, asked Gregory, are there in the character of God which are not found in the Spirit? What titles which belong to God are not also applied to him? Well said. And so today, let's set aside a program in our wider discussion of the Trinity and simply understand the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. Let's begin by noticing that both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the two languages that make up the bulk of the original languages of the Bible, that the actual word spirit, in Hebrew it's the word ruach, and in Greek it's the word pneuma. In those languages, spirit is a neuter noun. Now I know that for some that's evidence that the Holy Spirit can't be a person. For if he was, wouldn't the word spirit be a masculine or a feminine noun? Now before we answer that, Let's understand that English is different in its grammar than a great many other languages. So if English is your only language, what I'm going to say next will will sound a bit strange. In English, we don't have a masculine, feminine, and neuter nouns the way they do in other languages. And it may surprise English speakers to learn that the gender of nouns is not what we might expect. For instance, in German, which is my first language, a young girl or das Mädchen is a neuter noun. Now, we would expect it to be a feminine noun. I'm using this as an example to say that in language, not all things follow logically. And so, for instance, in Greek, the word time is masculine. The word desert is feminine. The word boat is neuter. Or consider what Jesus said about angels, that they have no sex, and yet the word for angel is masculine. 
And so just because the word for spirit is a neuter noun, that does not necessarily indicate the absence of personhood. Now, that we know that the Greek word pneuma, or spirit, is a neuter noun, let's consider the next bit of evidence. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus refers to the spirit as the spirit of truth. And then he says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, grammatically, since the word spirit is a neuter noun, it's necessary that when Jesus says he dwells with you, that the he or the pronoun must be a neuter pronoun, which would correspond to the neuter noun. But in John 14, verse 17, John violates Greek grammar and gives us the masculine pronoun he. That's grammatically incorrect. But John, who knows his grammar, violates the rules of Greek grammar and substitutes a masculine pronoun. And that's not the only time he does that. Go forward to John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Again, as before, the pronoun he violates the rules of Greek grammar. John uses the masculine where the neuter is called for by the regular rules of Greek. Go forward to John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, the Spirit of truth, he will bear witness of me. Masculine pronoun again. John 16, verse 8, when he masculine comes, there again is a promise of the Spirit. Or in John 16, verses 13 to 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Over and over again, as John tells us what Jesus says of the Spirit, John deliberately violates the rules of Greek grammar so that we don't miss the point. Now, in truth, if John had used the neuter pronoun, we would still argue that the Holy Spirit is a person. But John, in order that we don't misunderstand, tells us by violating grammar that the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. We're speaking about a person. This person, a he, convicts the world of sin, guides the apostles into truth, glorifies Jesus, and so forth. He is a person, not a force or a power or energy that does this. It is a somebody, not a something. Now, all we need to do is think about this for a moment, and we can see that this must be true. See, if as Jesus taught and John recorded it in John 14, 26, that when the Holy Spirit came, he would ensure that everything the apostles taught about Jesus was accurate and comprehensively represented all that Jesus said, how is such a thing accomplished by a power or an energy? Clearly, Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit was a person. You know, this is affirmed in the rest of the New Testament as well. Consider Ephesians 4, verse 30, where we're told, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you bring grief or feelings of sorrow to a power? Or consider Romans 8, 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit has a mind. Hebrews 10, 29 warns us against those sins that spurn the Son of God and then in the same sentence outrage the Spirit of grace. How do you outrage a power? Indeed, just as you spurn Jesus, you can outrage the Spirit. Now, we could go on and on. In Matthew 12, verse 31, Jesus speaks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 5 verse 3 tells of lying to the Holy Spirit, and Romans 15.30 speaks of the love of the Holy Spirit. Think of the way in which Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us of the actions of the Holy Spirit in the early church. In Acts 11 verse 12, the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go with the men from Cornelius. In Acts 13, 1-4, we read that the first ever missionaries, Paul and Silas, were sent out by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, verse 6, we read that the Holy Spirit forbade them from going to Asia. And in Acts 20, verse 28, the Holy Spirit appointed certain men to be elders of a local church. All of this tells us that not only did Jesus speak of the Holy Spirit as a distinct person, But the early Christians encountered him as a very real person and spoke of his activities in their lives as the activities of a person. And so can we once and for all put an end to the practice of referring to this person as an it? For as long as we do, we betray that we have no understanding that a real person is among us. The lack of awareness of the personhood of the Holy Spirit Reducing him to an energy or a power is so pervasive in the church today that it betrays that we have become ignorant of God. But simply proving that the Holy Spirit is a person does not yet prove that he is God, does it? Well, that's true enough. But once we settle on the truth that the Holy Spirit is a person, we need to ask the same question we ask around the personhood of Jesus. We need to scour the scripture and ask who Jesus is and then conclude that he is both fully God and fully man. And from that, we have a pattern. We can do the same study with the Holy Spirit. Since we know that the Holy Spirit is a person, let's scour the scripture and ask who the Holy Spirit is. And when we come back, we're going to see that the Bible not only teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God, it teaches us what our relationship to the Holy Spirit should be like. When you think about the Holy Spirit, what picture comes into your mind? It's so important, as Dr. Neufeld has pointed out, to rightly understand who the Spirit is. He is a person, not a force or energy. Scripture demonstrates this reality again and again, as we've just heard. But how do we know He is God, and how should we relate to the Spirit in our own personal faith? We'll find out when we come back. Thanks so much for listening today. You know, it's official. Our brand new publication is now out. Truth in Life magazine is the latest resource from Back to the Bible Canada, and it goes out every two months or six times a year to households across Canada. Our new magazine format includes a wider variety of articles from both Dr. Newfeld, Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, guest authors, and pastors. Readers will enjoy content that is biblically based, engaging, and practical, and will leave you considering your response to some of the difficult issues of life and your walk with Christ. If you're not receiving your copy, be sure to sign up today for your free Truth in Life magazine. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or go to backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We've made the point that the Holy Spirit is not a power or a force, but a real person. But does that prove that He is God? What does the Bible say about him? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, first, let's notice that many of the attributes that are attributed to God alone are attributed to the Holy Spirit. 
In Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, David says, Where shall I flee from your spirit? See, throughout this study, we've noticed that many of the attributes of God are exclusive attributes of God. That is, there are some things that are true of God that are not and cannot be true of any other thing. God is one, true of none other. God is eternal, true of none other. God is omnipresent, and by that meaning that God is present to all spaces at all times, even while he remains distinct from the creation, that can only be said of the one true God. And so, if we can never flee from the Holy Spirit, for he is already present wherever we go, clearly, when David speaks of the Holy Spirit, he must be speaking of God. Learn to read your Bible by paying attention to what is said of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, clearly, from that passage, we can see that we have a verse that mentions all three persons of the Trinity. When the passage mentions God, it's speaking of God the Father. When the passage mentions Jesus the Son, it's speaking of Him offering Himself up on the cross to His Father. And when it speaks of the Spirit, it speaks of the power of the One who enabled Jesus as a man to act in such a sacrificial manner. But notice when the writer of the Hebrews speaks of the Holy Spirit, he calls him the eternal spirit. No, the Holy Spirit did not come into being. He eternally exists. There has never been a time when the Holy Spirit was not there. His life is non-derived life. He exists of necessity. To say this of the Holy Spirit is to say of him that which can only be said of the eternal God. Or consider 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, by now, if you've been listening to this series, it should now be second nature that when you read God, we're speaking of God the Father. And as we've seen, the Father gives leadership. But here we're told no one comprehends the thoughts of God the Father except the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we might ask, does the Son not also comprehend the thoughts of the Father? And the answer to that would be, well, yes, he does. So why does 1 Corinthians 2.11 say that this is exclusive to the Holy Spirit? Well, that's because of the context of this passage. You know, in the passage, we're told that the testimony of the gospel, the wisdom of God expressed in the cross, is a wisdom that can come to us from only one source, and that source is through the Holy Spirit. And then we're asked, what is unique about the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, only He knows all the thoughts of God the Father. That means only he, as opposed to any human, like the Greek philosophers or the Jewish rabbis spoken of in this passage. What makes the Holy Spirit unique is that he has a full or a comprehensive knowledge of everything that the Father knows. Whatever the Father knows, and he knows everything. The Holy Spirit knows this as well. And so with just a bit of careful Bible study, we should see that whether we're speaking of God's eternal being or of his omnipresence or of his omniscience, or we could go on to speak of his power and wisdom, all attributes unique to God the Father are also applied to the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it becomes obvious that if the Holy Spirit is indeed a person, he must be none other than God himself. And so we're brought again to the mystery of the nature of God. 
There is but one God, and this one God is different from any other thing in all of his creation, for this one God eternally exists as three distinct persons. The three persons are the one God. And if we struggle to understand that, this is simply because the one God is different from all other things, and the one God is greater than we can imagine. But what does the Holy Spirit uniquely do? You know, as we've seen in our study, God the Father planned our redemption from eternal ages. God the Son accomplished the work of our redemption by becoming a man and by perfectly obeying the Father in his death on the cross. And God the Holy Spirit completes our salvation by drawing us and transforming us to love the gospel and the God who gave us the gospel. But there's still more to be said about the unique role that the Holy Spirit plays in the economy of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit uniquely reveals the presence of God to the world and especially to the church. The word that's often used is the word manifest. Imagine, if you will, a play being acted out on a stage. You hear the voices, you hear the actions, the movements on the stage, and the drama becomes apparent. But imagine that the lights in the auditorium are turned very low, so low you could hardly see what's going on. And then suddenly, the lights go on fully, and now you can clearly see that which is happening. In Job 9, Job is speaking about the actions of God. In verses 4 and 5, he says, "...who has hardened himself against God and succeeded." And then Job says, God removes mountains and they know it not. Indeed, not only are the mountains unaware of God, but people also may experience the activity of God and still remain completely unaware that it is God who's doing it. That's because they can't see God. And then in verse 11, Job adds another thought. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. See, the human senses are unable to observe God. And this we know of God. He is utterly sovereign. He raises up kings and deposes them. And most of the world of men and women are completely unaware that he has done it. He has created this world. And there are scientists who will spend their entire lives fascinated by the wonder of creation and never notice the one who made it. Furthermore, God calls every human being to account for all their actions and many are completely unaware that he has reserved a day of judgment in their future. And finally, God sent his own son into the world, and as John tells us, he came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. Indeed, all the works of God, which are glorious, need no more than to be observed by God and to be delighted in by God. After all, God has created wonders on planets and galaxies that no human eye has ever observed, and God has made these things for his pleasure alone. Listen to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Witness to whom? And the answer, to us. I want to go back to the image I gave earlier, that of the image of a blackened stage in which a drama is taking place. The stage is blackened from our eyes, but not from the eyes of God. Even the drama of God sending his own son into the world could be blackened from our eyes forever, and God would still find it beautiful, for as Romans 3 reminds us so clearly, Jesus' death on the cross demonstrated the righteousness of God. God himself would have been glorified in the death of Jesus, even if no human eye would have found it wonderful. 
But the unique role of the Holy Spirit is such a gracious role for us. He who knows the mind of the Father flipped on the floodlights and suddenly those of us in the audience saw the nature of the play that the Father had designed for his glory. And as the lights came on, we rose to our feet for the beauty of the God who exists is overwhelming beyond degree. Who turned on those lights and let us see? And that's why all of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit find the Father to be their highest joy and the Son to be the passion of their lives. See, we can't take our eyes off of the glory that has been revealed. The Holy Spirit shed the spotlight on the Father and the Son no one else could. Were it not for him, none of us would delight ourselves in God. Thank you, God the Holy Spirit. John, thanks for today's message. Uh, We really understand now that the Holy Spirit is a person in the Trinity, and that's really critical to our understanding of God. But in our day-to-day lives, how do we understand how the Holy Spirit works and functions and inspires us, or what does he do? You know, I I think uh, what this study was intended to do was to help us to understand the person of the Holy Spirit. The works of the Holy Spirit are so important as well, and I think that's what you're drawing our attention to now, Ben. And and I think that we can say because the Holy Spirit is there to reveal both the Father and the Son to us, the primary action of the Holy Spirit is to get us to love the Father and the Son, to lead us to be more like Christ, and so to empower also the Christian life. And so you get passages like Galatians 5, 23 to 24, which speaks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 speaks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'd say the fruit of the Holy Spirit makes us authentically Christian. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit make us effective Christians who know how to act in the power of Christ. And so uh, both of those things are really the central issue of what the Holy Spirit does in in the life of the individual. But even so, uh, we still recognize that the Holy Spirit who comes to us and draws our attention to the Father and the Son is himself God and worthy of worship. We've learned so many important lessons about who the Holy Spirit is today. But fundamentally, it boils down to this. The Spirit's role is to point us to the Father and to the Son. What a simple yet profound truth for us to grasp as we learn how to properly view His role in the Trinity. Let's reflect on the power of the Spirit who dwells in each of us and opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ and what He's done for us. I hope you've been impacted in some way by our study today with Dr. Neufeld. Don't miss tomorrow's program where we conclude this great series, This Is Our God, looking at why the Trinity matters. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Our view of God affects not only every aspect of our faith, but our whole lives too. In the words of A.W. Tozer, who said, Acquaint thyself with God. All Christians must dedicate themselves to a lifelong journey to know who God is, from the most reliable source, the Bible. Hopefully you've been blessed and convicted from Dr. Neufeld's current series, This Is Our God, where we've touched on so many fundamental aspects of the nature of God. That said, we want to offer you this great series on CD for your personal study or even to share with friends for a special reduced price of $18, and it includes shipping and handling. Don't forget to order yours today before this offer runs out in February. 
Give us a call for This Is Our God or to make a gift to sustain this ministry at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.